Or you can take your Bibles and open up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 this morning. And this morning we come to a passage that delineates male and female roles. And specifically today we're going to take a closer look at the women's roles, which just happens to be the verse we're looking at. And invariably any time the topic of women's roles comes up in the Bible, you often, one way or another, hear about feminism. You guys, I'm sure, all know what feminism is. It's not necessarily new. Ancient societies witnessed sparks of the women's rights movements. For example, in the 3rd century B.C., Roman women filled the Capitoline Hill and blocked every entrance to the forum when the consul tried to repress their rights. But for the most part, we know feminism to be a 19th and 20th century movement. Historians have identified several waves or movements within feminism. First wave took place during the 19th and early 20th centuries and primarily came to focus on equal voting rights for women. And this first wave of feminism ended in 1919 when the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was made granting women the equal right to vote. And that, I think we all can agree, was a good thing. That was a good thing. The second wave of feminism came in the 1960s and focused more on fighting social and cultural inequalities as well as discrimination. Some of the changes made during this time are also agreed upon by all as being beneficial. Opposing domestic violence, sexual harassment, and sexual assault, those are good things. Those were good achievements. And for those women who do enter the workplace, the opportunity for equal pay is just and discrimination based on gender is wrong. So those changes were for the best. But this second wave of feminism is known as radical feminism for a reason. One of the major issues they fought for was bodily integration and reproductive rights. In other words, feminism argued that women were entirely independent and in control of themselves. And this autonomy extended to their own bodies which we know of today as the woman's right to choose. That is, to choose to be pregnant or not. And it was not long before the Supreme Court endorsed a woman's right to choose by legalizing abortion in 1973. An additional issue feminism pushed was the sexual liberation of women. No longer in bondage to men, women were free, even sexually, of course, this led to the eventual rise of divorce and more homosexuality. These, in turn, led the charge and the attack against the traditional family, which is the fabric of society. It's no wonder society has paid the price for the radical feminist agenda. Since that time, the divorce rate has skyrocketed, as everyone pretty much knows. It still holds at about 50%. However, now women are twice as likely as men to file for divorce, and as a result, countless families are disintegrating. Children suffer as they're being raised by the TV or by daycare as mom is off working. But that's not the worst of it. Think about this question. It's kind of interesting. Statistically, where is the most dangerous place to be on Earth at any given time? Statistically, the most dangerous place on Earth at any given time. It's in the womb of a pregnant young mother. 
If you happen, if you happen to be an unborn person, there's a good chance you're going to die soon. Which is pretty sad, but it's true. It's a true consequence of this radical feminism. So out of curiosity, do you know how many Americans died in the American Revolution? Our first major conflict? 50, or excuse me, 25,000. That's a lot, but not compared to the other wars. Civil War, 500,000 Americans died. Half a million. That's a lot. World War I, 116,000. World War II, 400,000 Americans died. And then Vietnam, 58,000 Americans died. That's a lot. You add all those, those five major conflicts in our history up, and that's 1.1 million, roughly. 1.1 million. That, that's a lot of, of people who have died in war. Since abortion was legalized, 50 million. 50 million Americans have died from abortion. At the end of the day, no Bible-believing Christian can stomach what this radical feminist agenda pushes. And though some of the gains made by this movement are just and good, those were some good things made, in its radical form, it's simply a 20th century attack on God and his word. It's really nothing new, though. Satan pulled the same trick in the Garden of Eden. He went to Eve for a reason. And he knew what he was doing. And from the beginning, he sought to subvert God's ordained family structure. That's what he was doing. And the consequences of that move are obvious. Now, unless you have your head in the sand, it should also be obvious to you that most of what radical feminism stands for is antithetical to God's word. And so it's no wonder that the Bible is is rejected and ridiculed and derided by radical feminists. It's shunned. It's kicked to the curb. It's no longer relevant for the modern woman. And so either the Bible falls or the radical feminist agenda fall. But both cannot stand together at the same time. This is why today, even in the church, the issue of women's roles, it's, it's a huge issue. It's still a very you know, hot topic issue. It's, it's a major issue in the church, even today, women's roles. However, some who champion radical feminism, they don't want to throw away Christianity entirely. They want to hold on to what they call their faith, and so they make compromises to reconcile their faith with these radical ideals. And the result is that these sinful morality changes are even invading the church. For example, Carter Hayward, a lesbian Episcopalian priest, performs same-sex marriages and promotes lesbianism as the associate pastor of a church in North Carolina. And she said this in a 1985 National Abortion Federation convention. Quote, if women were in charge, abortion would be a sacrament, an occasion of deep and serious and sacred meaning. End quote. That's pretty scary. But the point is that from, out, from without and even, even now from within... God's truth and God's plan are being attacked. It's true, it's happening. God's plan for the family, God's plan for women. God has set forth his design and his plan in scripture, and you you can't improve upon God's plan. Nor should it be, because in reality, by design, God intends for women to find true joy and really true satisfaction in his plan, as crazy as the world thinks that is today. He intends that women find true fulfillment in his word and his 
designed for them. Same goes for men, but today for the women. Where's that plan found? Where do we see God's design, God's plan for women? Well, in large part, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 gives us the picture of godly Christian living. And we see all throughout the New Testament. Right doctrine should lead to right living. We know that. We've seen that a lot. What does this right living look like, though? Well, Titus chapter 2. Last week, we examined the portrait of the older generation. As Paul fleshes out this Christian ethic, he first turns his attention towards those who are older. And he gives them instruction for for finishing the race of faith strong and for leading an, leaving an example for those who are younger. That's what we covered last week. Next, however, Paul turns his attention toward that younger generation. What's the picture of godliness for them? Well, verses 4 through 6 give that answer. Before we get into these verses, though, a quick reminder here. Keep this in mind. All the instruction we find in Titus chapter 2 it presupposes faith in Christ. I want to make that clear. In other words, if you don't look to Christ in trust and in faith as your Savior, in trying to live like this, trying to conform yourself to all this stuff we're going to look at, it's not going to do you any good. The point is, if you're still dead in your sins, apart from Christ and faith, it doesn't do you any good to polish your outside. It's not the point. First, you need to see your sin. You need to see your inability to be reconciled to God on your own and to please him in any respect. Then you need to look to Christ in faith for forgiveness because he purchased that forgiveness for you and only he can make that reconciliation happen. Only then does everything we study in Titus 2 apply to you. Only then. Only after you've been saved and transformed by his grace should you concern yourself with being conformed to his image because... Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. So that's a reminder that needs to be at the front of your mind as we go through these these verses. With that reminder, however, let's now read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But as for you, he says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, Sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Today, as we focus on God's instructions for younger men and women, we're treading on famous ground, especially for the women, because in addition to Proverbs 31, Titus 2 is one of the defining passages on what it looks like to be a godly woman in Scripture. So much so that you hear a lot of women say, I want to be a a Titus 2 woman. What does that mean? Well, what does that look like? Well, we're going to find out. Paul spills the most ink here in these verses, talking to the younger women. So we're going to likewise slow down here and really see what he has to say and what God God has to say about young women. 
Paul's continuing to paint a portrait with his words. Now it's of the younger generation. And so to those of you who are a part of that younger generation, this is what you should look like. This is who you should strive to be like. And for those of you who are a part of the older generation, as we learned last week, this is where you should want to lead them. This is the example you want to leave behind for those who are younger. And whereas last time we observed four marks of godly older men and four marks of godly older women, this week let's observe seven marks of godly younger women. Just keep the pattern going. Seven marks of godly younger women from verses 4 and 5. Now just to point out, the first six of these in the Greek, they actually come in pairs. One, two, three, four, five, six. So we're going to treat them two at a time. Now I don't want to throw you off. Nothing you know, too complicated here. But we're going to do these two at a time. Take them in pairs. But it's straightforward from the text. So here are the first two. The first two marks of godly younger women from verses 4 and 5. Number one, they love their husbands. And number two, they love their children. Go verse 4. So that they, speaking of the older women, they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, number one, and two, to love their children. These are our first two marks. They love their husband, they love their children. As we learned last week, the older women in the church are to help come alongside the younger ones in their walk. And first, what are they to do, as it says in verse four, to encourage them to love their husbands, love their children. You can probably observe here, that when Paul says younger women, he's really he has in mind young wives and young mothers. And granted, it's not God's will for every woman to get married or have children. But nonetheless, to those who are married and to those who do have children, they receive this first pair of instructions. So first, notice the emphasis here for these young women, it's on the household. The message God wants to convey to young women is that commitment to the family and to the household, it's of the utmost importance for them. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, there were all these false teachers roaming around on Crete, leading people astray, and they were doing what? They were invading, he says, households, overturning households. Just look back to verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, For there are many rebellious men, Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. Or as some translations have it, they're overturning households. So I think Paul senses that the household, these family, these house churches, they're the, the battleground for these attacks. And so at the very least, he wants to make sure that their family structure on Crete remains strong, that they're not being overturned. Now, if you can humor me here on a a brief tangent, hopefully you know that the household is the nucleus of the society. God himself establishes that creation. He ordained that the family would be the basic building block of society, the family. When God created the earth, time and time again, he looked upon the earth, he saw that it was good. He created the light, it was good. He created the land, it was good. The sea, it was good. Plants and animals, it was good. Time and time again. Then God created man. And for the first time ever, something was not good. What was not good? Genesis 2.18. 
God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. Creation was not complete. Therefore, God created woman to complement man. He brought them together. He told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And when those children do grow up and marry, God declared, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the very beginning, the family has been the bedrock of our existence, civilization, humanity. It's God-ordained. It's before the fall. Now, if that's the case, what happens when this family system is under attack? Or where is that? What happens when the family system fails or is destroyed? Well, you can probably imagine civilization fails or civilization is destroyed. We've witnessed this with countless civilizations in the past, and we are starting to witness it today, even here in America. The God-ordained institution of marriage and the family, they're massively under attack in America today. Not long ago, for example, Cameron Diaz, the actress, she made a comment that marriage was a dying institution and got a lot of press for whatever reason. She said, quote, I think we have to make our own rules. I don't think we should live our lives in relationships based off old traditions that don't suit our world any longer, end quote. First off, would you go to a gardener for investing advice? Or would you go to a doctor for baking advice? Probably not. So, in the same way, we probably shouldn't look to actors for any life wisdom. So, that, okay, that's being said. <laughs> that being said, though, she does express the growing views of our society. That's true. A doctor named Keith Abloh recently made more waves by going even further in attacking traditional marriage and family definitions. It's a long quote, but follow along to this. He says, I'm not certain marriage ever did suit most people who tried it. From what I hear in my psychiatry office and from what I hear from other psychiatrists and psychologists and from what my friends and relatives tell me and show me through their behavior and from the fact that most marriages either end in divorce or acrimony, marriage is a real source of suffering for the vast majority of people involved. He goes on to say, our collective experience with marriages failing in such great numbers is itself one of the reasons the institution is dying. No one likes being part of a group of hypocrites. The fact that millions of Americans take vows to stay in marriages for life, then leave those marriages once, twice, maybe three times, has so trivialized and mocked those vows that many silently chuckle to themselves while listening to them. Once enough, Divorced parents have wept with joy at the placing of rings on the fingers of their daughters or daughters-in-law. The backbone of marriage as an institution must snap. It's only a matter of time now. Marriage will fade away. We should be thinking about what might replace it. End quote. It's a lot in there, but that's pretty crazy. That's pretty radical thinking. But again, more and more and more people today are thinking just like that. Marriage... It's pretty much done. We're on, we're on to something new here. Like I said, marriage and the family are massively under attack. Just last week, it was reported the number of people over 18 and married in America has dropped to record low, just 51%. Which means if you're married, you're almost a minority. And what people don't realize is that 
the demise of society will quickly follow the demise of family. It just will happen. Okay, so why do I bring this up? Why this long tangent on marriage and the family? It's because as we see things unravel around us day by day as believers, it's all the more important for Christians to understand God's will for the family and to faithfully practice it. Because we cannot be a part of the demise that we see going on, at the very least. And to the contrary, as things grow darker in the world, you as believers must let your light shine all the more so in that darkness. Get this. Faithful, lasting, joyful marriages and families are now becoming some of the greatest mediums for evangelism because it's so rare. Think about this. If you and your spouse, you've got your act together, you've got a good marriage, you're raising godly, obedient children, sooner or later the world's going to take notice because that doesn't happen too often anymore. The day will sooner or later come when they'll ask you, what's your secret? How do you have your act together with your marriage and your kids? Now will be your chance to, to tell them the gospel, to tell them about Christ. My wife and I, we're already starting to see this happen. We got married young, relatively. I was 22, she was 21. Pretty sure our parents secretly thought we were nuts. And probably also thought, you know, we'd probably get divorced however many years go by. But as the years do go by and they see us still happily married, they're starting to take notice. In fact, they've already labeled us as the rare exception of weird young people who get married young and, and thrive. But each year, they take more and more notice. And the point is that strong, biblical, loving marriages and families, they're now an absolutely critical part of your testimony to the world. It's huge now. In fact, I want to show you two quick verses on this principle, how important this is. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll get back to Titus in a second. Philippians chapter 2. This is a a verse on marriage, if there ever was one. I'm sure you'll see how it applies. Philippians 2. (coughs) Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verse 14. As we read verse 14, with all of your effort, try not to elbow your spouse next to you. But Philippians 2, verse 14, says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's a good verse for marriage. But look at verse 15. What, why? What's, what's the big deal? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He's driving at them as your behavior. It's being watched. You live in a crooked, perverse generation. Sounds like today. So let your light shine. That's the point. That's why you should act that way. Or consider 1 Peter chapter 2. One more verse. 1 Peter chapter 2. Why don't you turn there really quick. Verse 12. 1 Peter 2.12. Another really good verse on living amongst the world. 1 Peter 2.12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent, among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I hope you can see how these verses apply to marriage and family today. The point I'm making is because of the world we live in, we need to buck the trend of failing families and instead passionately strive to have godly, lasting, joy-filled households. You can flip back to Titus chapter 2 now. It's a worthwhile tangent that I wanted to throw in there. And hopefully now as we come back to Titus chapter 2, with, with greater urgency you can heed this first pair of instructions to the younger women. Namely, for them to love their husbands and to love their children. It's a big deal. These are big commands. The verb for both of these, it's a present, active, infinitive, indicating that these are to be continuous, habitual love we're talking about here. Not to show love for your families once in a while, every now and then, but all the time. Continually be loving your families. Notice the order here. The husbands are placed above the children. And I firmly believe that's on purpose. It sounds backwards today because in our world of, of divorce, we put the children above the spouse. But according to God, you're not one flesh with your children. You're only one flesh with your spouse. The highest union there is on earth is between a husband and wife. So rightly, husbands and wives need to maintain the priority on that relationship, first and foremost. Some parents today essentially forsake one another in order to raise their kids. Their relationship takes a backseat. It's all about the kids. So don't get me wrong. You should definitely, you know, be responsible with your kids, but some parents forsake one another to raise their kids, and then the kids grow up. The kids leave the house. Mom and dad are left behind alone. They just sit around and look at each other and realize they don't even know one another anymore. They don't even like one another anymore. And so many of these marriages then end in divorce when the parents, or excuse me, when the kids are gone. Learn the lesson. God wants you to put your marriage first. And invest first in that relationship. You can see why this is all the more important a reminder for younger women because they probably above all, they have the most motherly pressure to to put the kids first. You know, young mother, it's very tempting to be all about the child. And so they need to remind her to first love their husbands. The first step of good parenting is having a good marriage. You hear that? The first step of good parenting is having a good marriage because that's part of what enables you to raise your children in a good environment in the first place. You can't be good parents if you're not good husband and wife. So younger women, of course, by no means neglect your children. That's not what we're saying. But first and foremost, love your husbands. That's the reminder here. Another key observation to make in these verses, it seems like there's just Nothing there, but there's a lot in here. This one's pretty interesting. It's the fact that these young women need to be taught to love their husbands and their children. That, doesn't that sound kind of strange? I mean, really they need to be taught this? Doesn't that just come naturally? I mean, if you didn't love the guy, why'd you marry him? But not so fast. That portrays a, a big misunderstanding of love and marriage. The love we're talking about here, it's not a romantic or sexual love. 
in this verse. It's a committed love, love of commitment. It's a selfless love that's not based on the husband's love of lovability or deservedness. It's a type of love, care, and dedication that you should show to even those unloving, uncaring, and undedicated husbands. There are no conditions placed on this committed love, none in the text. There's no exceptions placed on this committed love, none in the text. If a woman does not have this love for her husband, then she needs to be taught to have it. That's the point. It might sound strange to you. It's, it's weird. You, you teach a wife to love her husband. That's kind of strange. But you would be surprised, oftentimes today when people get married, they don't always have this love in their mind. It's usually romantic love or lust drives their marriage. The committed, unconditional, sacrificial love that is expressed in their vows is not really a part of the picture. Of course, though, the couple, they're sure they're going to last because, I mean, hey, they were perfectly compatible on their eHarmony dating profiles. So, of course, they're going to make it. What happens next, though, is they quickly realize there's no such thing as compatibility when you're dealing with two sinners. Don't forget that. No two people are compatible if they're both sinners. It just doesn't, that's a myth of compatibility. It doesn't exist. But what happens for them is they start getting on one another's nerves. Their romantic love starts to run out. They begin to fight and quarrel. The problem is they have nothing to fall back on. The house of marriage that they built never had a foundation of true, biblical, Christ-like love. And so that house never had much of a chance. Instead, as we read here in Titus 2.4, these young wives must be taught, if need be, to really love their husbands. Young women need to understand their husbands will not always be so lovable. In fact, men can be at times rather unlovable creatures. It's true. Not always easy to love, but instead of fleeing at the first sign of trouble, godly wives need to persevere in that love. Now, of course, this all applies, and really more so, to husbands, per Ephesians 5.25. Guys, we're going to pick on you in two weeks or so. But for now, in Titus 2, we're looking at the women. And so first, they need to be taught to love their husbands. Secondly, they need to be taught to love their children. It all applies to their children as well. Again, it seems ludicrous. How could you need to teach a mother to love her children? I mean, of course she loves her children. It's inherent that she loves her children. But again, you'd be surprised. Children are also not so lovable, always. Especially when their rebelliousness comes out. And furthermore, young mothers can be prone to showing their children the wrong types of love. For example, it's not loving to indulge your child, give them everything they want. It's not loving to refuse to discipline them. Both of these are a false love that will only spoil the child. Young mothers rather need to be taught to rightly love their children. And don't forget the context in all this. What's the context? It's that older women, verse 3 into verse 4, are to come alongside those younger women and to, to help them, to disciple them, to teach and show them what this love looks like for their husband and the children. 
Younger men and women are both prone to many mistakes in youth, and so they need that godly older generation to, to help them, to guide them. For the young women, although your Prince Charming may not always be so charming, and although your little angels may not always be so angelic, they need to be taught to love their husbands and children. Now, we could from here spend a ton of time exploring what this love actually looks like. I just want to look at one verse, though, just to give you a good example of what it really looks like to love your husbands and children. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 again. I know you were just there, but this verse, these two verses, they really put on display what this selfless love envisions. So turn to Philippians 2. If you're out there and you, if you find it hard to love, if you're having a hard time loving your spouse, loving your children, or just anyone in general, you need Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Memorize it, write it on your hand, whatever. You need these verses. They're so helpful. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And starting in verse 5, it shows you how Christ was our example of these two verses. So huge. Read Philippians 2. But this should characterize all believers, but especially let, it, let these verses spur on the young women to, to rise to the challenge. Not all is going to be easy, but to truly persevere in that love for your husband, love for your children. So that, remember, that you may stand out in a world where countless other women are abandoning their families. This is part of your testimony now as well. For young women to first love their husbands, second, love their children. Well, I think we spent enough time on these first two marks. Let's move on to the next two. Remember, we're taking these a pair at a time. Let's look at the next two marks of godly younger women. Number three and number four. Number three, they are sensible. And number four, they are pure. Number three, they are sensible. Number four, they are pure. Straight from verse four. I'm sorry, in verse five now. First, we have sensible. We've seen this many times now. It's a characteristic required of essentially everyone. And the fact that essentially every believer is called to be sensible makes us like, it's like a standing order for Christianity to be sensible. And are you familiar with what a standing order is? A standing order is an order or rule that is always to be held in force unless specifically withdrawn. So, for instance, a, a doctor might have a standing order to his nurses to immunize all new patients. He doesn't have to repeat the order, just it's something they do without question every single time. Or military. It's a standing order for enlisted men to salute officers. If you see an officer, you're in the military, you salute him. You just do it. You don't have to be told. It's a standing order. You do it all the time. For Christians, I imagine if there ever was a standing order based on Titus, it seems like it would be this, to be sensible. All, at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, God wants you to be sensible here, especially the younger women. 
Sensible again, it means self-control. You have control of your thoughts and your actions. Therefore, you have control of your lives. You could even call it a common sense or a good judgment to be sensible. You've got a perfect example, if you want to know, of what it does not look like to be sensible in King David. See, although David was a man after God's own heart, at, at times, perhaps too often, he acted without much sensibility. You remember, of course, his sin with Bathsheba. I love how 2 Samuel 11 starts. That's where it is. Verse 1, it says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David, the king, sent Joab, dot, dot, dot. See, David was king. Why, isn't, why wasn't he going out to battle? He was feeling privileged. Instead of going out to battle himself, he's like, Job, you go conquer. I'm going to stay home and relax. And that's what he did. The very next verse Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. You know the story from there. David sent for the woman, Bathsheba, only to find that she was married to Uriah. This is where David's brain pretty much shut down. And you can see he was not being very sensible. He had no control over his thoughts and actions. Forget the fact that as king... He's supposed to uphold justice. And forget the fact that as God's servant, he was supposed to always do that which is right. He lost his self-control. He did not act sensibly. So he took Bathsheba as his own. She got pregnant. He had her husband killed to cover it up. Perfect example of what this does not look like. This is pretty much the opposite of being sensible. To the contrary, these younger women here in Titus, they need to be sensible, in control of your thoughts, your actions, disciplined over yourself to lead a a godly life. That's what it means. And he says here, they also must be pure. This word for pure is used to describe someone who is free from sin. And most of the time has a sexual connotation. But it can fit the description of any sort of immodesty, be it in conduct or in speech, or in dress. The young woman must not do anything, or say anything, or watch anything impure, nor must she wear impure things that tempt men to impurity themselves. Women today think this is restrictive, this is oppressive, this is not what's good for them. Here's an example of where a woman's true joy before God can be found in God's plan. This is part of a woman's modesty. It's part of her dignity, and it's part of her purity. And you got to see a couple of verses on this, because there's a, a few good, really good key parallel passages here that I want to show you. The turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's real close to Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll look at one here. First Timothy 2. Verses 9 and 10. It says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Now I'll turn back to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 again. We'll actually see this more in 
detail next week, this chapter, 1 Peter 3 in Scripture. But 1 Peter 3, and narrow in on verses 3 and 4. Speaking to the women, he says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So it comes down to who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to look good for? Men or God? God calls young women to be pure, and that part of that purity includes modesty. Now, here's the thing. If, if there's any women out there who maybe you struggle with this, with uh, dressing modestly, or maybe you know someone who does, I've got a passage for you. One more. Turn to Isaiah chapter 3. Just humor me here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 3. If you have a hard time finding that in your pew Bibles, it's on page 461. But Isaiah chapter 3. I gotta set this one up. It's a time of judgment upon Israel. The people have sinned greatly in many ways. And the people as a whole, they've turned away from following God. And this passage speaks of God's judgment, specifically on Israel's women. Now why would God speak judgment on the women? That's because they were especially immodest and impure. They didn't care about being pure and attractive before God, but they rather were going around trying to be attractive and seductive before the men. Kind of sounds like today. And so they gave themselves over to vanity and modesty and impurity, so God sends out some judgment upon them. Because they should have known better, especially as God's people. It's one of those shock value texts from the Old Testament that's good if you struggle with this. Look at Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go around with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. That day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, Ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. They had a lot back then, I guess, huh? Verse 24, now will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. That's the smell of death, by the way. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. Like I said, shock value text. But it gives God's judgment on Israel for their modesty. Don't let the same happen to you. Obviously, this is not a promise that God will do these things to you. But you understand the principle here and the point. These passages aren't teaching that wearing makeup is a sin or looking beautiful is a sin. That's not the point. But here's the deal. First, God wants you to save your beauty for your husband. Second, 
God wants you to focus more on your inner character of godliness than on your outer appearance of attractiveness. God has a holy jealousy for his people, for the purity of his people. And this especially extends to the younger women. For them especially, this is going to be their temptation, for some even their snare. So consider well your speech, your actions, your dress. It's all part of your modesty, your purity. And practically speaking for a moment, if you're ever in doubt, for the young woman out there, if you're ever in doubt about the modesty of some dress or some activity or or something like that, go ask an older woman in the church. Do you think this is modest, this dress or this activity or, or whatever it is? That's what you should do. Remember, again, the context here is the older woman instructing the younger So don't hesitate to contact the elders' wives or any of the godly older women in the church and and learn from them an example of what it means to be modest and pure in day-to-day matters. Well, seven marks of godly younger women. One, they love their husbands. Two, they love their children. Three, they're sensible. Four, they're pure. We have three left to go, but we're not going to speed through them and cram them all in here. I've saved them all till next time on purpose. Because I really wanted to give us plenty of time to cover these hot-button issues. Because the next three are the big ones in our day and age as being controversial. Number five, they are workers at home. Can't be serious, right? They're workers at home. Number six, they're kind. Number seven, they're subject to their own husbands. Really? They're supposed to be subject to their own husbands. Our society doesn't like that. So I want to really spend the time next time to unpack these and really understand them. I mean... Is Christianity backwards here? Are we getting this wrong? Should we not be like this? Should the women not be like this as well? I want us to find out with plenty of time next time. Some questions to think about. What does it mean for a woman to be a worker at home? Is it sinful for a woman to work outside the home? Why do some people argue that it is? Is it sinful for a woman to have a career? What does it mean for a woman to really be subject to her own husband? What if her husband is rotten or a poor leader? And aren't these all just commands for the first century woman? Are we really expected to be governed uh, by these ancient and outdated instructions? Just a few of the questions we want to tackle when we get back to this verse after Christmas. I know it's just scratching the surface of women's roles, but come back next time. You'll hear more about these. But for now, though, for the younger women, consider well first your love for your husband, for your family, and how you show that love. And consider well your sensibility, your purity. Strive to make sound decisions right now and to really take seriously the purity that God wants from his people. Take that serious. You find true joy and satisfaction in what God wants for you, not in what the world says. And if you work on these things as an outgrowth of your salvation by faith in Christ, then you're going to stand out like a beacon in a world of darkness and put a smile on God's face as you witness to the world the magnificence of his plan for women. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for these words we've learned this morning on on women, godly younger women. We thank you for the young women in, in this church, Lord, and, and for uh, the example that they lead in doing what is right. We pray that you would You would move in them to 
seek to conform themselves to, to this picture. Again, this is by grace in Christ through our salvation, but help them to be the young women you want them to be. To really be exemplary and above reproach in their example as younger ladies. Bless this church. Keep us free from the pitfalls of our society and the wrong thinking that's out there. Help us not to be invaded by it. In all things, Lord, just help us to be by your word, by the book. It's really what it comes down to. We want to be people of the book, people of your word. So help us to cherish these words and not to shun them as our world does today. Guide us in your truth, Lord. We love you. We thank you for our salvation in Christ. And again, we we look forward to next week when we remember Christ, his birth. Lord Jesus, we remember you every week, but we thank you so much for coming to earth, for becoming a man, and for dying for our sins on the cross that we might be forgiven. May we bless your name for it. May we bless you by living godly lives for you. In your name we pray. Amen.